and welcome to the Public Forums program of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. This series brings together scholars, specialist commentators, and the general public to explore historical perspectives on contemporary issues. The following forum, Shopping for Health, was recorded live in front of an audience at the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, but the program continues to develop and grow. We invite you to participate and add your voice to the conversation. Visit chstm.org slash shoppingforhealth, where you may add comments or questions in the discussion forum, read additional expert commentary, and access relevant resources. Hi there, I'm Susan Lindy. I'm a historian of science, and I am also the chair of the board of the Consortium for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. Um, as you know, we're co-sponsoring this event, and... Um, I want to express my thanks to the Pew Charitable Trusts and to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Both have supported us in our effort to participate in outreach programs that bring interesting questions to the public, including questions like um, the ones we will explore today about shopping for health and the consumerism of modern medicine. I do want to mention that the entire event is being recorded. And it will be online soon on the Consortium for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine website with some additional commentary and resources. And I want to invite everyone interested, everyone here, or anyone interested to um, comment on that website to continue our discussion today. So keep that in mind as we uh, have a relatively short time today, but I hope we can, can keep this moving. So today, uh, our speakers, our two distinguished speakers, will be exploring why do we call patients consumers. And each of them will have 30 minutes to speak, and then we will have half an hour of discussion following that. And also remember that at the end of this event, there is a reception to which you are all welcome to attend. Um, our first speaker is Nancy Toms. She is a distinguished professor at Stony Brook University. Her 2016 book won the Bancroft Prize, and if you're not a historian, you don't know what a big deal that is, but I can assure you it is a very important prize. And this book was called Remaking the American Patient, How Madison Avenue and Modern Medicine Turned Patients into Consumers. So Nancy's expertise is directly in this area, and she has been extremely influential in her attention to these questions of patients as consumers um, in the clinic and also in the drugstore. One reviewer said that this book, and I quote, lays a groundwork for new, a new field of inquiry. So it's already an influential book and we're very lucky to have her here. Other books have um, included the award-winning Gospel of Germs and uh, a book called Madness in America. She was a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Fellow, the recipient of an NEH award, and the end of the Arthur Vizeltier Award from the American Public Health Association. She is also the greatest honor, a PhD graduate of my own program at the University of Pennsylvania. She studied there before my time, but we are peers in that respect. So with that introduction, Nancy Toms. Okay, how's the sound? Yeah, good. Well, it's a pleasure to be back here at the College of Physicians. 
a place that holds many happy memories for me. Uh, some of these date from, whoops, from my uh, graduate student years when I worked here both as an employee and as a researcher, and others from the late 1980s when I came here on a Rockefeller Foundation postdoc and stayed on to serve as acting director of the Francis C. Wood Institute for the History of Medicine. I even have an entry in um, the college's record of spectral visitations uh, kept by Gretchen Warden, the longtime director of the Mutter Museum. And there's a story for the reception. So I'm grateful uh, to the consortium and the college for making this homecoming possible. So tonight I'm here to introduce, introduce what is admittedly a vexed subject one that I've spent almost 20 years trying to wrap my head around, and that is why in the United States do we use the language of consumers and consumerism to talk about health and healthcare? When and why did we start to think of doctors as providers and patients as consumers? It is a topic I know from personal experience makes both doctors and patients angry, uh, just to think about, and in fact, uh, most physicians hate the language of consumerism. I can imagine Dr. Radbill twirling in his grave to have a topic uh, with this title being discussed in uh, the lecture named after him. Doctors object to being shopped for like a used car salesman and view patients who go around asking for treatments they don't need as a menace. Not coincidentally, doctors use the term doctor shopper um, to refer to drug addicts who go from patient to patient in search of narcotic prescriptions. Patients, too, feel resentful of the dollars and cents orientation of modern medicine, where no treatment will be offered you until you show that health insurance card. When complaining about consumerification, both doctors and patients usually assume that these are problems of very recent origin. Didn't the internet invent medical consumerism? I actually hear that a lot. In fact, the idea that patients need to shop carefully for their care originated long before Google Doc. I found enough material for a 422-page book in which the internet appears in the epilogue. As I think I convincingly show, the belief that in order to get good care, you have to choose it very carefully goes way back in American history. The emphasis on why shopping originated as a defense mechanism in the sell your snake oil and hang up your shingle and call yourself a doctor days of the 1800s, and as medicine became more modern and scientific in the 20th century, those skills expanded and adapted to include selecting among increasingly expensive specialists, hospitals, drugs, and insurance plans. The emphasis put on careful choice reflects the dovetailing of two trends, the highly decentralized, often entrepreneurial, fee-for-service style of practice that American medicine has excelled at, and its nesting within a robust consumer culture dedicated to promoting all things health-related. Compared to our developed nation peers, the United States has a more entrepreneurial, profit-oriented medicine uh, approach to medicine, that is characterized by comparatively weak medical gatekeepers and an embrace of health-related advertising as a form of consumer education. And you probably know the United States is only one of two nations, the other being New Zealand, that permits direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription drugs. 
The need for critical consumerism, that is, the educated patient who shops for medical care with a discerning eye, is a direct byproduct of that culture. In my book, I look at how these trends played out in two parallel universes, the doctor's office and the drugstore. Tonight, to fit into my allotted time, I'm going to focus more on the drugstore. And this condensation is going to leave out a whole lot of very important stuff, such as the limits of our health insurance system. You can ask me about those in the Q&A. But for a forum on uh, shopping for health, the drugstore serves well to highlight the tensions inherent in promoting medical services and products as consumer goods. The proper functioning of the medical marketplace has long depended on the assumption that a rational patient will make it work right. Homo economicus will learn to read labels and to resist misleading advertisements. She will know when it's time to put down that over-the-counter remedy and head for the doctor's office to get a prescription. But that concept of the rational patient consumer has been consistently undercut and confused by other less rational currents in modern consumer culture. First, the imperative to sell drugs has encouraged a vibrant tradition of marketing and advertising that overstates their efficacy and encourages the recourse to a pill as a magic shortcut, the pill for every ill. Second, the imperative to be healthy has competed with inducements to pursue pleasure and indulgence. Eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow, take your anti-cholesterol drugs. The drugstore also illustrates a critical aspect of doctor-patient decision-making. It's the 20th century evolution reflects a sharpening distinction between over-the-counter drugs and prescription drugs. Between 1938 and 1952, medicines were clearly divided into two categories, over-the-counter drugs that were safe and mild enough that consumers might self-medicate with them, uh, versus prescription drugs that were so strong and subject to potential side effects that they should be taken only, quote, under a doctor's supervision, end quote. That distinction highlights a key difference between the marketplace of health and that of, say, automobiles or personal computers. The more powerful and effective the drug, the more likely the doctor has to order it for you. Uh, the doctor has to be your trusted or learned intermediary to use the legal language. And that's a relationship that doesn't exist in the car dealership or the computer sales floor. The power of the prescription pad reminds us that medicine is a fundamentally asymmetrical relationship. The doctor knows more than you, the patient, do, and thus has special powers to direct your care. To trust your learned intermediary, you have to believe that the medical decisions she recommends for you are not motivated by profit-taking. And yet the way American healthcare has been marketized over the past half century has undercut that trust. What critics uh, started calling in 1970 the new medical industrial complex has created a lot of gray areas where uh, doubt has flourished. As you probably know, the chief medical officer of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center just had to resign because he had not disclosed payments that he had received from drug companies promoting new cancer drugs. Thus, as a nation, we end up with a trust problem. We want to trust our doctors, but we worry that the seeming obligation to use our health as a profit sector leads to bad things happening. If the limits, um, and, and so you have to wonder, if the limits of the system are so clear, why do we persist in this approach to health decision-making? Well, let me try to offer you some historical perspective on that question. 
The shopping for health tradition in this country has its roots in a do-it-yourself mentality that dates back to our colonial origins. When European settlers came to the British colonies, their guild-based traditions of medical uh, professionalism did not survive the trip. The motto, every man his own doctor, was a popular one, starting in the 18th century. Even when more trained doctors began to appear in the 1800s, the ancestors of the physicians to be found today at places like Jefferson and the University of Pennsylvania Medical Center, they faced enormous competition from rival medical sects and alternative healers. Uh, on the left, that's a botanical medical kit uh, sold by Samuel Thompson in the 1820s, complete with a guide on how to treat yourself and your family. And on the right is a homeopathic family guide from 1879. In the second half of the 19th century, the so-called toadstool millionaires applied the tools of modern industrialization to expand self-help from grandma's tonic to an array of proprietary remedies packaged in nice bottles and promoted with extravagant advertising, the famous patent medicine. Until the early 1980s, Americans had a lot of leeway, at least as long as they had money, uh, to buy what medicines they wanted and to gauge what uh, the doctor of their choice. There were as yet no third-party payers, no insurance company or pharmacy benefit manager stood between you and the care you wanted. Both medicine and pharmacy were lightly regulated in this country, and the premise was let the buyer beware. It was the patient consumer's job to distinguish the good from the bad, and if you ended up with the bad, it was your own fault. But this lightly regulated medical marketplace began to tighten up at the turn of the last century, as physicians and lay reformers started to call attention to the dangers of uh, too much freedom of certain kinds of choice. Worries about proprietary medicines, including their liberal use of alcohol and narcotics, led to the 1906 Pure Food and Drugs Act, which set the first national guidelines for the labeling of medicinal drugs. The 1914 Harrison Act set more protections regarding the prescribing of addictive drugs, and David is going to talk about both of those more. At the same time, mainstream medicine uh, started to gain more prestige as it adopted new diagnostic tools, bac bacteriology, the x-ray, medical procedures, aseptic surgery, and powerful drugs, morphine, aspirin, salversan. This more scientific medicine allowed the medical profession to gain more control over medical education and licensing and made it harder for their alternative competition to stay in business. Now, the icon of this new medicine was, of course, the hospital. Uh, this is a 1908 uh, operation at the Hospital of the Good Shepherd in Syracuse, New York. Um, and the hospital became a focal point for specialization in the medical profession. But this reorganization of medicine also carried over into the remaking of the doctor's office, where most, modical, most modern medical care continued to be delivered. Instead of home care out of a black bag, increasingly the new modern doctor required the patient to come to his office. Now, these changes were portrayed as gains for patient consumers. They had less freedom to choose, yes, but the array of choices they could make were safer and better. Yet within short order, a growing number of disgruntled patients started to question how well their interests were being served. And certainly, the rising cost of medical care was one issue. More demanding medical training, more technologically intensive care, and growing specialization all served to drive up the cost of medical of care. So much so that by the 1920s, patients were starting to complain about what the Saturday Evening Post uh, article referred to as the high cost of keeping alive. 
even with all their credentials, as um, uh, new credentials um, to act as trusted intermediaries, doctors faced pressures to convince patients to be willing um, to pay that higher cost. And um, in an age when advertising of doctors was, uh, was banned, they depended on GPs or grateful patients to do this um, advertising for them. As a doctor's wife put it in the 1920s, a doctor, quote, must in the common phrase, sell himself or put himself over with his patients in order to prosper. Um, and again, to do this without advertising himself. And starting in the 1920s, you can see doctors starting to spiff up their offices to make them more welcoming, uh, putting magazines in the waiting room, some of them left out boxes of cigarettes. Uh, this is a waiting room in rural Missouri uh, where you can see the, the potted plant. There's a newspaper for um, the, the uh, man to read. Um, a part of a general uh, uh, reorganizing to make doctors' offices more, um, more comfortable. Now, one of the reasons these efforts were so pronounced is because, besides each other, interwar doctors had another uh, source of competition, and that was a new style of drugstore. This is a Walgreens store window from Chicago, 1920. Like so many progressive era reforms, that federal drug regulation that I mentioned before helped rather than hindered public faith in the marketplace. Barely was the ink dry on that 1906 uh, law before um, the officials administering it recognized how limited their powers were, not only over the labels, but they had no power over the off-label advertising. That went to another agency. Um, yet many Americans believed simply um, because the 1906 law had been passed that all drugs were now safe to use. And this faith helped birth a new retail phenomena, the modern drugstore. Uh, the granddaddy of the American-style drugstore was uh, um, Charles Walgreen, an entrepreneur who broke with his fellow pharmacist's distaste for aggressive retailing and turned the old-fashioned pharmacy into the 20th century drugstore. Walgreen combined features of the late 19th century department store and the early 20th century variety or dime store to create a new corner store where all the goods you needed to take care of yourself were neatly arranged. The new drugstores op, uh, adopted a policy of opening later and closing open, I'm sorry, opening earlier and closing later than other retail outlets. This is a people's drugstore uh, in Washington, D.C., lit up at night so folks could find it. A 1927 article in the trade periodical Advertising and Selling praised this open-door policy as a sign of American progress. Quote, if you want the contrast, try to buy a tube of toothpaste late in the evening in London or Paris where you will meet with no success. But in any fair-sized town in America, you may alight from a train. Note that you are minus a hairbrush or a toothbrush and stop at almost any corner and be served promptly. And I can attest from personal experience, uh, go to the Netherlands, their drugstores are nothing like our, our uh, drugstores. This is really an unusual retail culture. American drugstores excelled at working the magic of modern consumer culture. Um, to uh, sell drugs, but other um, um, comforts of life. Here's a promotion for a new Rexall drugstore in Los Angeles in 1948. And in tiny print at the top, it says, before a store opens, a line has already formed around the block. When doors opened, a woman entered yelling, hey, doorman, where are the orchids? 
As the ORCID example suggests, this new drugstore's retail profile uh, appealed to the irrational as well as the rational sides of homo economicus. While making the most of its monopoly on real drugs, the drugstore also appealed to the pleasure principle, offering a wide selection of candy and cigarettes, cosmetics and bath salts, along with remedies for overindulging uh, and overeating and overdrinking and otherwise not living that abstemious life. Not only did the drugstore offer this seductive array of goods, but it advertised them relentlessly, making the fortunes of many an American advertising agency. And this is a spoof from the uh, uh, comedy, the um, magazine Ballyhood, uh, Ballyhoo Humor magazine uh, from the 1930s. Is there a doctor in the agency just uh, taking all the headlines from uh, health-related ads? While people flocked to the new drugstore, they had their critics as well. Critics who decried their overzealous promotions as just a retail version of the old-fashioned medicine show. Proprietary drugs were a major focus of the uh, revitalized consumer movement in the 1930s, evident in the publishing success of the guinea pig books, uh, starting with Catlett and Schlink's 1933 bestseller, 100,000 Guinea Pigs. In case you're wondering, the guinea pigs were the American people being stuffed full of dangerous food and drugs. Physicians did not like this commercial drugstore either. It was one, and it was one of their rare areas of agreeing with those uh, consumer activists. The medical hostility to the aggressively commercial drugstore came in part because of its ballyhoo, filling patients' heads with dumb ideas that the doctor then had to correct. But they also disliked the potential competition. Although professional pharmacists swore they had no intent of stealing the doctor's patients, uh, doctors complained a lot about so-called counter-servicing um, throughout this time period where the pharmacists would essentially be practicing medicine. Drugstore owners tried to calm the waters by their strategic deployment of the prescription counter. Now, until the 1960s, drugstores virtually had a monopoly on selling prescriptions prescription drugs in the United States. You could not get a prescription filled in a supermarket. And drugstores worked that advantage. Um, this is the prescription counter in a drugstore in Ames, Iowa in the 1950s. And starting with Walgreens, American stores always had the same footprint. The prescription counter was always at the back, so the customer had to walk by all the other aisles with the over-the-counter drugs, but also the playing cards, the cosmetics, the candy. Um, and until the 1940s, um, it, it was the over-the-counter drugs and the so-called sundries where uh, drugstores really made their profit. But increasingly from the 1940s onward, it was, it was the prescription drugs that started to come to the fore as um, a profit center for the retailer, but also a boon for the physician. And as a result, the symbiosis between the prescription counter and the doctor's office began to uh, deepen. Now, in the 1950s, doctors continued to face pressure to make their practices more patient-friendly, to come up with new and more attractive waiting rooms, to offer, again, more goods and services, and to itemize their bills to show patients what they were um, paying for. Um, but of all the, the goods and services that doctors had to offer um, after World War II, by far the most important was the prescription drug. After half a decade of frustration, laboratory research finally began to produce real magic bullets, that is, drugs capable of reversing human disease processes in the late 1930s. 
and 1940s. Indeed, many of these drugs, including sulfa drugs, penicillin, and cortisone, to name just a few, remain in use today. Their very power also made them potentially hazardous to use, hence that sharpening distinction between drugs that could be sold over the counter and those that required uh, the so-called legend, caution, to be dispensed only by or on the prescription of a physician. And this is the, um, the, the legend, uh, the RX there to say this is a legend drug. Because only doctors could prescribe legend drugs, they were the primary focus for prescription drug marketing and advertising. Now, even before the 1940s, pharmaceutical companies had already developed effective methods to promote their products to physicians. But with this flood of new drugs, now under greater patent protection as well, the volume of those pro promotional activities accelerated dramatically uh, after World War II. And although pharmaceutical companies uh, did not do direct-to-consumer advertising of pres prescription drugs in this time period because doctors so violently objected to it, they still found plenty of ways to uh, promote prescription drugs to the public, as a very good article by uh, David Hersberg and Jeremy Green has shown. And one of the ways they did it were through so-called institutional ads, didn't advertise a specific drug, um, but rather made the case for prescription drugs in general. Um, this is part of a series by Park Davis, and the two dads are talking, and basically one is saying, well, the prescription cost a lot of money, but it, uh, it, it was cheaper than a hospital bill. Patients were encouraged um, to ask for the latest fashionable drug, and one particularly popular and also controversial line of prescription drugs uh, were the so-called minor tranquilizers. The, these are his and her ads for Milltown uh, in the late 1950s. Here again, the critical consumerists piped up, much as they had in the 1930s. This group, who were largely uh, white middle-class professionals, uh, started to complain about rising drug prices, unexpected uh, side effects, and also to worry about the influence of pharmaceutical companies on doctors' prescribing habits. The idea that they, as consumers, should pay high prices for drugs without being warned about side effects seemed out of step with the more egalitarian temper of the times. Prescription drug issues fed into a broader vein of concern that medicine was becoming too mercenary. And thanks in part to the creation of the Consumer Price Index, it was now easy to see that the cost of medical goods and services, including prescription drugs, uh, was going up faster than other kinds of consumer goods in um, the 1950s. And thus you get uh, cartoons such as this one by Richard Taylor appeared in the New Yorker in 1959. And note there's a prescription bottle there on her bedside. These concerns were aired at length during the hearings presided over by Senator Estes Kefauver, during which a parade of experts testified about uh, problems with prescription drugs, including the failure of physicians to be properly skeptical of drug company promotions. There was also uh, there was extensive media coverage of the Kefauver Kefauver uh, hearings reflected in articles like this one from, again, from Life magazine. This is called A Big Pill to Swallow. Um, and thus, by 1960, politicians and journalists alike had started to use the word crisis to describe the problems roiling the, uh, uh, the American healthcare scene. John F. Kennedy beat Richard M. Nixon 
uh, for president in 1960, not only because the latter sweated during their TV debates, but also because Kennedy promised that if he got elected, he'd both address the problem of prescription drug costs and safety and set up a new uh, program to cover the health needs of the aged. Now, once in office, Kennedy lost his zeal to enact the, the reforms that Kefauver wanted, especially about curtailing costs. Then the thalidomide tragedy came along, and the Kefauver-Harris amendments finally passed in 1962. A second tragedy, Kennedy's assassination, was required to secure the second big plank of 1960s health care reform, public financing of health care for the elderly and low-income Americans. That's LBJ signing the Medicare legislation and enrolling um, the first member, that's Harry Truman, uh, becoming the first uh, possessor of a Medicaid card. But this greater regulation of drug uh, safety and enhanced access to a doctor did not solve many of the problems critical consumerist concerns. That legislation did not work to control drug costs, firewall medical prescribing habits from pharmaceutical company influence, nor increase consumer access to information about drug side effects. The 1962 law did require that label and package inserts for prescription drugs include a brief summary of the drug's uses and side effects, um, including a fair balance of information about risks and benefits, but that information only went to the doctor. Um, it, it, it didn't go to patients. In, even in the 1960s, everyone operated on the assumption that the doctor or the pharmacist had to give this information to the patient who had no direct right to it. Hence became another cycle of consumerist complaining. In the light, late 1960s, against the backdrop of, of uh, civil rights, anti-war and women's movements, grassroots grass root groups started to make many new demands for patient in, empowerment. And one of them came from the women's health movement, which was raising concern about the safety of the oral contracept, uh, contraceptive, also known as the pill, a uh, famous book by Barbara Seaman. Uh, led by Barbara Seaman, uh, feminist activists successfully pressured the Food and Drug uh, Association to issue a mandatory patient information leaflet for the pill in 1969. Encouraged by this victory, health advocates uh, asked for more mandatory leaflets for drugs that pose significant risks of addiction and harm to pregnant women. Most doctors, pharmacists, and pharmaceutical company representatives fiercely resisted the mandatory leaflet program on the grounds that information sharing would undercut trust in the physician and make patients imagine all kinds of side effects that they would never get. When Ronald Reagan came into office in 1980, promising to free American business from excess red tape, his FDA appointees immediately put an end to any expansion to the mandatory program. Instead, the work of producing patient information leaflets was taken up by the National Council on Patient Information and Education, a not-for-profit group initially funded by uh, the pharmaceutical company Siba Gaigi. But rather than presenting drug information as a right, all patients should expect these voluntary programs presented as an educational obligation that patients should seek out. Eventually, the voluntary leaflet campaign did gain momentum, but for a kind of odd reason, uh, largely because in the 1980s, no longer so sensitive to physician opposition, 
pharmaceutical companies decided that consumer education, uh, the demand for consumer education, uh, was, uh, it meant it was a good time to start advertising prescription drugs uh, directly to patients. Um, here again, the idea of uh, direct-to-consumer advertising was uh, opposed by consumer advocates, physicians, and pharmacists um, still do uh, oppose it, but it happened anyway in an era when the search for the blockbuster drug had come to dominate the pharmaceutical industry. And thus we end up with both, um, that's a patient information leaflet and direct-to-consumer advertising as two, um, two sides of the same coin. And note the information sharing in part came about to reduce the legal liability of drug companies if it's on the label, you've been warned, and you own the consequences. Put together the persistence of the trusted intermediary problem that physicians are being lobbied heavily to prescribe more new drugs throughout this period, with the fact that in a fragmented healthcare system, Americans are starting to see more and more physicians without any of them coordinating their care, and you see the growing need for critical consumerism and the massive expansion of all kinds of guides to prescription drugs. So where does this leave us? To return to my initial point, the United States has long taken an entrepreneurial, profit-oriented approach to medicine characterized by uh, comparatively weak medical gatekeepers and robust traditions of health-related marketing and advertising. Within that culture, the prescribing of drugs has become a key element in how doctors keep patients happy and how patients try to manage their own health. The system is often imagined as a rational exercise in consumer economics, but as I hope as this overview is suggested, there is a lot of irrational in the way it works. The imperative to sell drugs becomes an end in itself. The distinctions between advertising and information get glossed over. The emphasis on individual freedoms, the doctors to choose the drug, the patients to get the drug, make regulatory safeguards get treated as impediments to patient well-being. We hear so much about how tough the FDA is on new drug approvals. What we don't often hear is that one reason for that toughness is that once a, dr a drug is approved, it's very hard to regulate how doctors use it. Now, since the 1990s, the FDA has been trying to improve post-marketing surveillance. Patients are now allowed to report issues directly, but the problems remain, both with drugs that are thought to be safe, that turn out not to be, and with drugs that are misused either by the physician, uh, the way the physician prescribes them, or the way physicians take them. We continue to play, pay the price of free will, as one 1980s doctor uh, put it, um, in, in this system. And the opioid crisis is but the latest example of, of these consequences. David will be discussing in a moment. Meanwhile, the tradition of shopping, both the good and the bad, uh, continues on. To get the right drug and the right medical care, Americans continue to have to rely on individualized strategies of wise shopping, which require enormous investments of time and energy to execute well. What you have to do with your prescription medications also applies as well to your choice of a medical specialist and a health insurance plan. It is a consumerist model of empowerment that re reinforces race and class privilege in that it's hard to execute if you are not affluent, educated, and uh, extremely determined. But I would say it doesn't even work well for the consumerist target audience of white professionals. Um, resolve the current opioid crisis and another one is likely to come along right behind it. I'm sorry to end on such a pessimistic note, but after you hear what David has to say, I think you may understand uh, 
that tone. Thank you. <laughs> I'm happy to introduce our next speaker. It's David Hersberg. He's an associate professor of history at the University of Buffalo. He's a scholar of the history of drugs, addiction, and medicine, and his 2009 book, Happy Pills in America, From Milltown to Prozac, will presumably be part of what he'll talk with us about today. Um, it's a book that explores happiness as a medical commodity, and it has been widely praised uh, as providing a critical cultural history perspective on psychiatry and medicines and, uh, and our current um, circumstances. He is also the winner of the J. Worth Estes Prize from the American As Association for the History of Medicine this year. And um, he won the Paper of the Year Award from the American Journal of Public Health. Today he's going to talk to us about the opioid crisis and medical consumerism. David. Thank you. That sounds like this is on plenty loud. Um, thanks, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. I, unlike Nancy, I, I haven't been here before. It's incredibly gorgeous. Um, and I'm especially happy to be able to share an event with Nancy, whose work I love, and it, which has had a really big impact on me. So I'm uh, looking forward to this. Here we go. So I'm gonna open with two different stories about today's opioid crisis, both of which highlight the ways that consumerism in medicine can go awry in the context of addictive drugs. The first story is about the beginnings of the opioid crisis. Uh, in this story, in the late 1990s, Purdue Pharma and other companies flooded the medical system with pro-opioid marketing and helped reconfigure medical institutions to encourage or even require more opioid prescribing. And thanks to their efforts, the most rational consumers, the ones who were most plugged in, the most aware of the re most recent medical findings, they were the ones most likely to ask for, accept, and use an opioid prescription for their pain. The result was a massive expansion in the use of opioids and uh, shortly thereafter a massive expansion in the harms that can be associated with opioid use, dependence, addiction, overdose, things of this sort. So, this opening of the opioid crisis is an illustration of one of the things Nancy was saying, that there are risks to medical consumerism because power and knowledge are so unequally distributed in medical markets. And unless those markets are, are robustly and carefully regulated, consumers are left trying to make rational decisions in the face of millions of dollars spent trying to convince them to make irrational decisions. So that's one story. Now the second story uh, is about the next chapter in the opioid crisis. And it too can be seen as an instance of consumerism in medicine gone awry, but in a very different way. This story begins in around 2007 uh, or so, when authorities responded to the opioid crisis by trying to restrict sales to people that they called drug abusers. In practice, this meant trying to identify people with addiction and prevent them from buying opioids. So, pharmacists were taught to recognize people with addiction and not to sell to them. Uh, high-volume clinics and uh, medical practices that sold lots of opioids to them were shut down and prosecuted as pill mills, and prescription monitoring systems uh, programs were set up to stop doctor shoppers. And thanks to all these kinds of efforts, people with addiction essentially lost their status as medical consumers. Uh, they were not considered to be even potentially 
capable of making rational choices, and so they were excluded from medical markets altogether. Some relatively privileged people did receive medication-assisted treatment with opioids like buprenorphine or suboxone, but many of the rest of them turned elsewhere to maintain their supply to a completely illegal and thus entirely regulated street market. And you can see here what happened is that the crisis got worse. I don't know if I have a, if I can make a little pointer thingy with this. Uh, nope. Okay. Uh, you can see. The, one of those green lines is the, the heroin overdose line. It shoots up around in uh, 2011, and then the fentanyl overdose line is blue, shoots up again shortly after that. So this became a much more intense crisis about, uh, after these efforts, after these efforts, right? So this story shows that the opposite problem, that there are risks to regulating drug markets too strongly to the point that uh, people are no longer considered consumers at all and are instead identified as abusers whose choices are fundamentally diseased, uh, even criminal or immoral. And if you take these two stories together, they illustrate a, a depressing paradox of American drug policy. On the one hand, regulation is too weak, allowing the engines of commercial medicine to produce what has essentially been a seemingly endless series of pharmaceutical crises. On the other hand, regulation is too strong, with drug prohibition actually harming some of the most vulnerable drug users and their communities. And to make matters worse, these things are usually happening at the same time. For example, during the crackdown on opioid abusers, uh, the pharmaceutical industry was permitted to continue to expand sales to opioid consumers. And so the market sales of opioids continued to rise during this time. And these twin problems have given rise to two very different political advocacy movements. On the one hand, there's a movement to rein in Big Pharma, to protect consumers by more closely policing the information that they receive and tightening the rules of the markets that they shop in. And so you have organizations like Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. Uh, they call for things like limits on opioid prescribing and prescription monitoring programs, things of this sort. On the other hand, is a movement to repeal drug war laws. Uh, to protect consumers by enabling them to make choices about their drug use, even if they have become addicted. So organizations like the Drug Policy Alliance, they call for things like decriminalization, uh, safe injection sites, quick test strips to see if there's fentanyl in a drug that's been purchased illegally, low barrier access to drugs like uh, buprenorphine and suboxone. All of these designed to make non-medical drug consumers able to make safer choices about their drug use. Now, these two political movements agree on a lot of things, but they're very different political projects, and they don't always work together well. Whenever these issues come up, my Twitter feed is full of people you know, yelling at each other back and forth. They both claim to be acting on behalf of consumers, but one calls for new government actions that will, in effect, restrict consumer choices, while the other calls for deregulation so as to expand consumer choices. So the framing question for my part of today's talk is how do we get here with drug laws both too weak and too strong and with reformers divided on which one of these problems do consumers really need us to fix? Uh, so today I'm going to recount the origins and the unhappy history of these strange and destructive divisions and suggest how knowing this history might hopefully help us uh, rethink drug problems and imagine new ways to address them. The origins of this divide lie in at the turn of the 20th century. As America industrialized in the late 19th century, drugs, like a lot of other products, became cheaper, more easily available, more intensely advertised, 
and of higher quality, in the case of drugs, stronger. And the result, people bought and used more of them. And as a result of that, there was a sharp rise in uh, addiction to morphine and cocaine within the medical system, particularly among the people who visited doctors the most often, talking about native-born, white, middle-class, particularly women. As use of these drugs expanded and more people became addicted, reformers were horrified by this problem, but they were also deeply sympathetic to these people that they saw. Uh, these, these white, respectable patients, uh, they saw them as innocent victims, innocent consumers in a market uh, that, for drugs that had careened out, out of control. Uh, so medical authorities said, prescribe less, be careful, protect your patients from this don't, don't let that market in to harm them, protect them. Um, and they tried to reform the practice of most physicians. And uh, consumer advocates like Samuel Hopkins Adams, you can see the famous cover of his uh, muckraking expose journalism about the patent medicine uh, business up here. He helped convince the government to pass the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. This act, among other things, it required that the labels on drugs be honest. It also specifically required that they list any narcotic ingredients on the label. Uh, now, it's important to note that the FDA did not actually outlaw the sale of anything. If it had an honest label, and if any narcotic ingredients were on that label, it was legal to sell. As Harvey Wiley, one of the main guys behind getting this passed, said, the goal is to ensure that the innocent consumer may get what he thinks he is buying. Okay. Opiates, cocaine, these were medicines primarily sold through the medical system. But the laws restricting them to the medical system were very weak, and there had been a lot of them coursing through commerce in cities uh, in America for quite some time, to the point that a lot of it spilled out, and they developed a popular following among different group of people, people who did not, in general, have uh, privileged access to the medical system. They weren't visiting doctors. These are largely poorer, immigrant men in American cities, particularly the unsavory parts of American cities, New York City. These are cities that were 85% immigrants or immigrants' children. Uh, and as addiction grew among these populations, reformers responded to this problem very differently. They did not see uh, innocent consumers in need of protection. They saw willful deviants and criminals. And there are a lot of reasons for this attitude. Just briefly, some of them came from the class prejudices against the poor. Reformers were respectable middle-class folks who saw these immigrant masses as scary and poor. They were also linked to starker racial stereotypes. You can see here, these are headlines in newspapers. There were tons of them about, uh, quote, Negro cocaine fiends who were especially driven to rape white women when they used the drug and required a higher caliber um, weapons on the part of police to gun them down. And you can also see there the smirking Chinese men luring white women into opium dens. So when reformers looked at these non-medical markets, they saw them as a wholly different social problem than those women been getting morphine from doctors. And so very soon after they passed the Food and Drug Act, these reformers got a second law passed, the 1914 Harrison Anti-Narcotic Act, and it did a number of things. It's a complicated law. I'm going to try to keep it simple. It, it criminalized the non-medical sale, purchase, or possession of the narcotics, which were morphine, cocaine, heroin, and thus making these drugs America's first prescription-only drugs. These were the first drugs that you had to get a prescription to buy. 
It also established the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, uh, which launched a punitive campaign against uh, this kind of drug user that they called uh, uh, dope fiends. This campaign uh, it was an attempt to exclude them entirely from medical markets to the point that by the early 1920s, it was even illegal for a physician to prescribe morphine or cocaine to a fiend. That wasn't considered a prescription. By 1928, narcotics violators made up uh, nearly a third of America's federal prisoners. There weren't a ton of them, but still, that's remarkable. So in response to this first wave of addiction to pharmaceuticals, all of these drugs were pharmaceuticals that people were using, the United States government worked with the medical professions to divide drug buyers into two groups, consumers who need to be protected and abusers who, uh, or fiends um, who needed to be uh, policed. So they created these two, they created two different drug regimes to govern these two different kinds of drug users. One was a system of relatively weak consumer protection based on uh, professional medical self-governance and the 1906 Food and Drug Act. It was designed for substances labeled medicines, as you can see, and the socially favored drug users called consumers or patients. The other was a stronger system of criminal punishment based on that 1914 Harrison Act and a bunch of state, act, uh, state laws that uh, imitated it. And it was designed for drugs labeled dope and the poorer, increasingly non-white drug users called fiends. Now, for historians, this two-tiered setup will look familiar because it looks like a lot of other progressive-era reform. Progressives invented the regulatory state to impose some order and rationality on America's commercial markets, but at the same time, they were obsessed with economic and racial hierarchies, and they did things like build Jim Crow racial segregation in the South and build a whole bunch of uh, complex forms of racial segregation in the North as well. And this kind of looks like it's got that progressive era stamp on it. It looks like it has both those uh, parts. From this perspective, then, what we see here is not the development of two separate systems, a pharmaceutical regulation system and a drug control policy, but a single, unequal, you might even say segregated, system for governing how Americans shopped for psychoactive drugs by dividing those shoppers into consumers and abusers. And this is by the early 1920s, and most of the elements of this system are in place. So, you had this drug crisis, this was the response. What happened next? How well did it work? What happened to uh, drug shoppers in this system? Whoops, hang on, not doing that yet. On the non-medical side, uh, sales and use of opioids didn't decrease. Instead, it remained more or less at endemic levels with an, uh, regular spikes upwards when drugs became more available for whatever reason related to international commerce and smuggling. These were not friendly markets to buy in. Uh, drugs were entirely unregulated and thus incredibly risky. And if you became addicted or if you were harmed in any way using them, uh, only punishment awaited you. So the illegal side went, as you might expect, it went poorly. But on the pharmaceutical side, the story is more interesting. Uh, as you can see here, this is a graph of uh, more or less per capita opioid sales. And you can see that it was very successful in reducing medical use of these drugs of, of, that went down quite a bit. Now, this in itself, just in itself, is pretty notable. If you've ever uh, tried to rein in a market for drugs, for any product that people like a lot and that's very profitable, it's hard to do, so that's impressive. But what's especially interesting is that 
this decline was not accompanied, as far as I'm able to tell, by an increase in the size of illegal markets or by a rise in overdose deaths. So how did that work? What happened to all the people who had developed addiction through medical markets, who are, after all, the majority of people with addiction uh, up through the early 20th century? Did they just quit? Well, short answer is no, they didn't. It turns out that a good portion of them appear to have been informally provided morphine uh, on an ongoing basis by their family doctors. This is where, at least, you can see there was a huge drop, and it can be misleading because there was still a lot of opioids going through the medical system. It seems likely that a lot of that drop were um, prescriptions for everyday things like toothaches and headaches that they started to uh, give people aspirin for instead, and that a good chunk of this, uh, of this remaining supply uh, was going to people who had developed addiction in the medical system. Now, you might remember that I said earlier this was actually illegal, according to the Harrison Act. But there were a bunch of loopholes in the Harrison Act. This was, in, enforcement was incredibly primitive. You kept paper records of your prescriptions on site. They had to come and look at them. Uh, and those uh, loopholes in weak enforcement were especially important uh, for physicians and patients who were outside the context where those dope fiends were supposed to be. The Harrison Act was about dope fiends. Dope fiends lived in cities. They were a certain kind of person. And so if you were practicing in a really different context, physicians had the ability to respond sympathetically to their patients who developed addiction. Uh, it was particularly common, for example, in Kentucky, in Virginia, uh, and in California. Evidence for this practice is actually really hard to come by because it was illegal and informal. But you can find it if you look hard. For example, lots of people who were being supplied by physicians at some point in their lives sent letters to the Federal Bureau of Narcotics uh, announcing that they were addicted and asking for a thing that didn't exist called a narcotics permit. You can see on the left here, it's a son. His mother had been uh, being provided morphine for 56 years by a doctor, and then the doctor died. I can't remember exactly what happens there, and he's saying she needs a new doctor, and the new doctor's a little, it's new, he doesn't know her, he's afraid to prescribe it, can you give permission? This one here on the right uh, is uh, someone who said, you know, I've been getting morphine from the doctor, but it's the Great Depression, we can't afford to go to the doctor anymore. Can you give us a permit so I can just go straight to the, um, to the pharmacist. So these are people who were announcing that they were addicted to morphine to the nation's, like the, that era's version of the DEA and asking for special permission. They weren't afraid of being seen uh, as dope fiends. Instead, however constrained their choices, these people still thought of themselves as consumers and still retained some of the dignity and choice associated with that status. Okay, so one of the ways to think about what happened after this regime was implemented in the 1920s is that this was a natural experiment of sorts. You had a similar public health crisis in two different locations, and you applied different responses, different policies to each one. Um, one was a prohibition regime designed to, to try to eliminate consumer choices, and the other was a robust regulation regime that was very restrictive, but designed to make consumer choices safer including to some degree the choice to continue using opioids even if dependence or addiction had developed. One of these approaches worked pretty well. The other did not work very well at all. But authorities at the time, and by, by authorities I mean both medical authorities and uh, legal authorities, misunderstood the results of this experiment. 
instead of thinking that this, well, I'll call it the consumer protection model, worked because it was good policy, they thought it worked because it had been applied to good people, to good consumers who had made rational choices. They thought those good white people who had been receiving drugs from their doctors, that they had made, they'd voluntarily chosen to stop using drugs once proper information and guidance was in place. Meanwhile, they said, well, these other, these, these urban racialized groups, those guys had continued to use drugs even though we told them to stop. How could they believe this? Uh, well, there was a practical reason for it. The people using drugs in cities were very visible. They kept getting arrested. They kept showing up at charity hospitals asking for treatment. So they were very visible. And people were, were looking at them anyway. These were the, the dangerous classes. There were people studying them, paying attention to them. Uh, it wasn't until I, I, a, there, uh, there were three studies of drug addiction outside of major cities that I've been able to find up until 1962. No one was looking for the other kind of drug user. And besides, they were informally getting drugs from a physician who didn't want to advertise that fact. They went under the radar. So experts looked at the situation and said, well, one group just disappeared. Smart group. The other group didn't. That's the, uh, that's the criminal group. So it seemed like a proof of concept. There really were consumers, and there really were abusers, and they really did behave like the labels said. Uh, that they were supposed to. And so as a result, a lot of these authorities began to see addiction as a moral failing, as the purposeful deviance of abusers, not as the innocent tragedy of misled consumers. <clears throat> this misreading turned out to be really disastrous for both kinds of drug users. Uh, by the 1950s, both parts of America's drug markets were in near catastrophic crisis. In New York City and other major cities, African-American and Latinx populations were segregated into neighborhoods where heroin was widely available for a lot of very practical reasons. And as addiction rates predictably rose in those areas, authorities responded, interpreted it as if this were just exa an example of the criminal tendencies of these populations. It was just a rise of consumers. These weren't uh, um, these weren't consumers trapped in a dangerous marketplace, which would have been one way to think about the situation. They were abusers acting out their innate character flaws. So these already vulnerable communities got both short ends of the stick. They got more addiction and more disruptive policing. Meanwhile, in medical markets, consumers were having a crisis related to different types of drugs. Barbiturate sedatives like Virenol, you can see one of the early ads on the left, above the clouds, uh, and amphetamine stimulants like the incredibly perky business dude on the left. Um, and sales of these drugs really took off right when uh, Harrison Act enforcement against morphine and cocaine uh, kicked in strongly in the second half of the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, they, the drugs, use of these drugs shot up even more dramatically in the intensified consumer culture of the 1950s when pharmaceutical companies pulled out all the stops and marketed the drugs relentlessly to physicians and also to the public through gimmicks like giving a tranquilizer to a wild lynx at the zoo. Uh, Life magazine covered three pages of it. And you know, everything that they could do to try to convey to the public that these wonderful drugs are available. And by the 1950s, almost a third of Americans had used one or another of these drugs in any given year. And when you consider that these were restricted to people who could go visit a doctor, pay for a doctor's appointment, and then go and fill a prescription, uh, whoops. Uh, that, that's, um, that's a lot of people from the white middle classes in America. The consequence was catastrophic. 
there was an enormous crisis of addiction and overdose. Between 1933 and 1953, fatal barbiturate overdoses, this is just one class of drugs, barbiturates, uh, overdoses rose by a factor of five. The death rate rose from 1.7 all the way up to 7.6 deaths per 100,000. Just for the sake of comparison, I put... Um, the uh, overdose deaths from prescription opioids in 2013. Turns out that number is pretty, still pretty similar in 2016. Um, obviously, the number for all opioids is much higher. But just to give you a sense, this wasn't a little tiny health crisis. This was a significant uh, crisis, uh, overdose crisis. That's just one of these classes of drugs. So why? Why were markets for these drugs permitted? Uh, they're potentially addictive. They're so dangerously toxic. Why were they allowed to grow so enormously, even as all these people were dying? And it's not going to be another decade. Like, at that death rate, it's another decade, more than a decade, before there are any new restrictions po uh, put on the sale of these drugs. It was in part because the people who used them, these white middle-class men, and especially women, with privileged access to the medical system, were understood to be consumers who were at least could or should be rationally pursuing health, not abusers irrationally pursuing pleasure. I'm going to give, a, a, I didn't have time for too many specific examples in, to try to meet the, uh, meet the half an hour limit, but I do have one example from the tiny town of Keel, Wisconsin, and I put the map here because it, when you study pharmaceutical addiction, it takes you to all of these places that people don't think of as drug war locales, like where things were happening. So that's the tiny town of Keel, Wisconsin, and uh, one physician there was discovered to be prescribing a very large amount of amphetamines. And so large that the state medical board said, well, we need to talk to you about this. What are you doing? And he says he was completely proud of his prescribing patterns. He was un unapologetic. He said, I prescribe amphetamines to make patients feel a little peppier. I prescribe them to help women keep up with the housework. Sometimes, he said, I give them a prescription simply because they're paying for an office call and they want relief. They don't want you to say, go home and take two aspirins. Uh, in other words, his patients were consumers whose desires could and should be respected. As he assured, and he assured authorities, he said, look, you know, don't worry. Uh, my town has no black market for drugs, he said. Nothing like, nothing like the city, he said. <laughs> I'm looking in the archives, reading this, and I'm thinking, what? of course your town has no black market for drugs. You already sell people all the drugs they could possibly want. But you can see how powerful these thoughts were, because there weren't any abusers in this town. There were only consumers. Right? Um, so this divided system really wasn't working for anyone, for nearly opposite reasons, both drug consumers and drug abusers were making purchases in dangerous markets that did not protect them from addiction and related harms. But broad political and cultural developments in the 1960s and 1970s brought changes to the politics of psychoactive consumerism. First, uh, these changes with civil rights activism by women and African-Americans who challenged that cultural logic, that founding cultural logic that divided these groups from each other. Uh, civil rights activists helped authorities see non-white drug users as more fully human, uh, more uh, deserving of sympathy, and perhaps capable of making choices. Uh, where, and women's activists helped health authorities simply take women's health problems seriously. And women, of course, were by far more exposed to, these, uh, to the risks of these pharmaceuticals. So that's one, uh, one development. The second um, 
as you heard from Nancy, was a new wave of consumer advocacy. I even had the same picture as her, but hers had color. It was, it was better. <laughs> um, a new wave of consumer advocacy pushing for more muscular state regu uh, regulation of markets. And that's Ralph Nader there on, on the left, of course. So starting with John F. Kennedy's White House conference on drug policy in 1962 and culminating in Richard Nixon's Controlled Substances Act in 1970, new consumer protection laws remade America's uh, addictive drug markets. Now, these laws have really big problems. Nixon announced his policies as a new war on drugs, and there was a, they were clearly designed to try to stir up racial fears and to exacerbate uh, those kinds of social hierarchies. Happy to talk about that in the Q&A. But I want to point out here that despite all these problems, the new policies were also shaped by consumer advocacy and civil rights activism. And they posed a real, if limited, challenge to the long-standing division between consumers and abusers in drugs. Uh, first, the Controlled Substances Act applied to both medical and non-medical drugs. They were in the same law. They were uh, overseen by the same agency. Up until that point, they'd had two separate agencies, two separate laws on the books in Congress. Uh, and it imposed really strict regulations on everyone involved in selling addictive medicines, manufacturers, wholesalers, distributors, physicians, and pharmacists. Um, but, oops, but uh, it wasn't a prohibition. Those drugs remained available, uh, and the goal, at least the stated goal, was to protect consumers, to enable them to make safe decisions about these drugs. Second, um, the crackdown on large market actors was accompanied by a massive increase in the availability of addiction treatment, most importantly, uh, methadone maintenance, which hadn't been available practically at all before. Um, this is the provision of a long-acting opioid to people with addiction so they can concentrate on other aspects of their lives instead of uh, trying to purchase an expensive, illegal, short-acting drug. And importantly, methadone maintenance and other forms of treatment were available to all drug users, not only to consumers, but even to people who had been labeled abusers. This approach was remarkably successful. You can see here that uh, medical use of sedatives and stimulants dropped by as much as 50% uh, during this period of time. And even more remarkably, these drops occurred without causing a secondary crisis of people shifting from medical to illicit markets. Prescription drug-related emergency room visits dropped by as much as 65% during this time period. So this was pretty remarkable success. Obviously, lots of problems with these laws. Happy to talk about them. And uh, not everybody was happy about the way that these laws changed American drug markets, uh, particularly some, um, some people who'd had that privileged access to the medical system uh, saw it as another entitlement lost to big government in the civil rights era. So you had uh, an Arizona man, he wrote to his congressman in 1973, I suppose I could be considered one of the silent majority. One by one, they're disappearing our freedoms down the bureaucratic drain. You're not letting me buy the drug that I am accustomed to buying. Another woman wrote to the FDA, I feel that my rights as a citizen of the United States have been infringed upon. Whatever happened to free enterprise, or do we really have something else? But the wife must have these to live a decent life wrote a Wisconsin man to his state representative complaining that Benzedrine, an amphetamine, could no longer be purchased in batches of 1,000 pills. So these letters 
share the instantly recognizable rhetoric of uh, silent majority whites curted by Richard Nixon through appeals to lost status in the face of civil rights movement, other social changes of the era. And they were an early signal of a newly emerging uh, conservative political coalition that was soon going to reconsolidate that moral divide between drug consumers and abusers. On the one hand, starting with the Rockefeller drug laws in uh, New York in 1973, law and order politicians competed to pass the harshest anti-narcotic laws to punish drug abusers. This process culminated in the mid-1980s scare over crack cocaine uh, and produced or helped to produce an era of mass incarceration so racially disparate that some have called it the new Jim Crow. At the same time, at the exact same time, President Reagan implemented deregulation of American markets and the pharmaceutical industry rebounded with new sedatives like Halcyon and Xanax, new stimulants like Adderall, and new narcotics like OxyContin, all of which were hyped as technological miracles that had solved all those old problems of addiction. So in other words, once again, there was a sharp and massive rise in drug use divided between relatively lightly controlled medicines provided preferentially to largely white consumers and punitively, punitively public punished drugs marketed predominantly in non-white and urban communities. It's not an accident, and I'm sorry for this complicated slide. It'll stay up. This is my last one, so I can just stay up there. Uh, the, the, uh, it's not an accident that these things happened at the same time. In fact, pharmaceutical policy and drug war policy have been evolving in tandem for a century. Whenever something big happens on one side, it happens on the other. The top is pharmaceutical policy, the bottom is drug policy. It's my contention that these are actually the same policy, parts of the same policy. Um, it's a policy that, uh, that, that determines uh, US governance of access to psychoactive substances by means of deciding who is a consumer and who's an abuser. And, and the story that this, uh, that this chart tracks, the, the worst periods in this story have been those with deep racialized divisions between consumers and abusers. In these periods, pharmaceutical companies have a relatively free hand to market dangerous and addictive medicines to consumers, even as abusers must navigate illegal markets with dangerous products and authorities tasked with punishing them rather than protecting them. These problems are related. Weak pharmaceutical regulations encourage popular fads for drugs that then escape the medical world and then drug wars are declared to, to rein them in. So, in other words, uh, it doesn't seem to have worked to carve out some drug users as consumers worthy of protection and care while seeing others as deviants and criminal abusers. This approach ensured that uh, the next epidemic was always brewing even as we were handling the current one. And this is what we saw at the beginning of this talk with OxyContin, a massive marketing-driven expansion of opioid use by consumers, even as emergency rooms and jails were filling with drug abusers uh, for uh, crack cocaine or heroin or what have you. So to solve these problems, uh, we have to find a way to look past a system that was frankly built a century ago in the heyday of racial segregation. It's the only way that we can bridge this gap between consumer advocates calling for stricter regulation of big pharma and drug war reformers calling for radical um, deregulation of drug markets. Both of these can be right, I think, uh, if you start from the proposition that all people who use drugs deserve a safe, regulated market and care if they are harmed despite those protections. But this goal can only be reached by reimagining the boundaries and meanings of this concept of consumers that we have inherited uh, and battled over for a century. Thank you.
Uh, David and Nancy are going to sit on the. Go. You're going to go sit in the. You're in the hot. You're going to be in the hot seat. So, and what I'm we back. usually do is uh, people who wish to ask questions and start a discussion can come to the microphone there. So, if you wish to line up and raise questions, that would be um, great. Thank you for two wonderful talks. I have a question for for both of you. Uh, the opioid epidemic that's currently going on now is, is horrible. But I've yet to see anyone talk about, the, or write about, the uh, movement in the mid to late 80s encouraging doctors to give more narcotics. Mm -hmm. um, I was practicing yeah. a long time, and mm -hmm. early on we hardly gave any narcotics to patients. Surgeons were especially uh, guilty of that. Someone could have major abdominal surgery and get an aspirin for pain. In the mid to late 1980s, there were a flood of articles uh, in medical journals that we were under-medicating patients, yeah. and the NIH sent a brochure out to yeah. all physicians saying we need to increase our pain control, implying we need to give more narcotics. I've yet to see anybody write about that or talk about that or address that. I, I, I'm happy to, to talk about that. So it's th true. There's, um, there was a, a, a very diverse movement of people uh, trying to convince uh, physicians and the medical system in general to take pain more seriously overall. And it wasn't just uh, to they, they, the only goal wasn't simply to increase prescribing of narcotics. This was a really diverse movement, had, had origins before the 1980s. This is uh, how uh, you had pain added as a disability in the Social mm -hmm. Security Act. So there was a lot of different ways that, that the medical system was encouraged to take pain more seriously. And it's true that there were, um, that the provision of narcotics during this uh, during this period of time when they were very strictly regulated, access to them uh, was really limited for everybody, as you say, but especially for people of color, for example, would, would be the ones least likely to be given enough narcotics in those situations. Um, I think that the best way to describe it, uh, if you wanted to um, put all the moving parts in place, is that there was a diverse movement of people trying to get pain taken more seriously. That included some people who wanted more opioids, particularly for cancer pain, right. as right. I understand, and also for uh, in acute cases, and that uh, there was a debate going on about the best way to move forward. The pharmaceutical industry observed that debate and poured an enormous amount of money and resources behind one set of voices in that debate, and uh, a lot of the uh, pronouncements in major publications that privileged that particular the, the idea that taking pain seriously meant prescribing more uh, opioids, that a lot of that stuff, you can trace some of that bullhorn back to the pharmaceutical mm -hmm. industry. So they didn't invent it, and, I, and you know, I, 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 I don't mean to take, I don't mean to not take pain seriously in describing it that way at the beginning, but it's certainly true that, uh, that, that, that the process of taking those steps was, was extremely distorted. By. Well, I, th I think it created a subconscious 
feeling in physicians that they weren't giving enough. It may have not been so uh, obvious, but certainly when you got a brochure from the NIH mm -hmm. saying yep. you're, not, you're not doing enough for pain, I think many doctors consciously or subconsciously uh, loosened up their, their prescribing of uh, narcotics, sometimes for bad reasons, sometimes for good reasons. And no one's really, really talked about that. And I think that is a factor that, yeah. that's been neglected, especially when the United States government pushes it. Mm -hmm. If I could just mention, your question also suggests, and Nancy, I'd like you to comment on this, mm -hmm. that if when we speak of consumers of health technologies, we're also speaking of the medical community, mm -hmm. which is subject to the same marketing that others yes. are. So, so I don't know how you've thought about that in your work, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the many level, different kinds of consumers, um, including physicians. Uh, there is no single consumer. I mean, that's part of the, the complexity. They're all different kinds of consumers. They don't all want the same thing. So when you're told consumers need to do, consumers want this or that, you can always find a substantial group that doesn't. So only some voices get listened to. I'm not quite sure I understand your question. I mean, there's certainly a problem with physicians and other healthcare providers also developing their own addiction problems. Um, but that, I think, is less because they're being uh, detailed in, in a way that, that it's because of the stress of the job and the availability of, of the uh, medications. Certainly, the doctor as a, uh, one, of the, one of the underlying um, issues with the late 1950s and early 1960s is uh, um, an exposure of the fact that physicians themselves are not being skeptical enough of pharmaceutical company promotions. And they are shown to be irrational consumers themselves. And that is one thing that, that helps uh, bring about the 1962, all the thing about the fair balance, that's aimed at doctors to get them to start being, trying to make them more critical of, of the, the drug exactly. promotions. Yeah. Um, Yes, you can come up and speak it so everyone can hear you. The, the uh, acoustics in this room, they're good, but not great. So. Sorry, it's my first time. Um, Hi. So I, I, I appreciate all this and everything. It was great. Um, but just coming more from a not necessarily America First perspective, to me it's kind of like it's fascinating how in that one graph that you had with the rates, um, of the overdose stats to heroin and all the, the illicit stuff. Um, around that same time, like 2013, 14, 15, 16, um, we had these unaccompanied minors too, right, at the border. And a lot of that is fueled, right, by the violence mm. and the organized crime, right, from all of these consumers, right, regardless of if it's in the suburbs or um, who it is. And I think too, I don't know how providers, right, or um, how um, at the policy level, we're really gonna be thinking in that lens as well, right? Because I think how these policies shape here in the US too, mm -hmm. there are a lot of global implications for that. And I think that's something to always consider as well. Like, yeah, we have this problem here domestically, but, what are we doing, right? And also, you have an unaccompanied minors, or 
right, coming to the border or with their parents and they're being separated, right? So it's interesting to see the history, but also what is the future gonna look like? That's just mm -hmm. a comment, not necessarily a question or anything. But, um, <laughs> Thank you. It's definitely a global drug trade. Do either of you wanna talk about that or? I mean, I, I, your, your colleague, Paul Gutenberg, has talked about mm -hmm. how uh, American-led drug prohibition regimes took legitimate industries, for example, in the Andes, uh, producing, uh, trying to modernize their economies by turning coca leaves into this medical product, cocaine, and what prohibition regimes turned that into one of these uh, illicit industries that produces, that without market competition, without regulation, can, can produce some pretty ugly things. I wonder if you could address the uh, role of the insurance industry in routinely underwriting pharmaceutical treatments for pain and routinely refusing to underwrite uh, non-pharmaceutical right. yep. treatments for pain. Mm. Do you want to talk in general about mm. insurance? <laughs> I mean, that the talk about the, the gorilla in the room is, is the third-party payment system that does come in eventually. Um, and that um, it plays an enormous role in um, determining what treatments get covered and what treatments don't. My understanding, again, to go back to the pain management issue, is that the evidence-based approach is multidisciplinary and would involve all kinds of non-pharmaceutical ways to control pain rather than just relying on the pain pill, but the pharmaceutical companies won't cover that. Um, so that it essentially does skew the, the treatment toward this more focused um, emphasis on, on prescribing medication because it's, it seems simpler, it seems cheaper in the short run. In the long run, you look up, you tote up the, the, the cost not only of, of the, the uh, not everybody's pain responds to a pill, it responds better to these others, the, the pain that's not managed, but then all the enormous problems that are created uh, by the addictions and how this is saving money is not, yeah. not um, entirely clear uh, to me at all. But the logic of the insurers is, is very much um, a huge part of this whole prop, set of problems that we're talking about. How much influence did the pharmaceutical companies have uh, over the insurers in uh, setting mm -hmm. up that policy? It's a really good question. I don't, have a, I, I don't have concrete evidence about that, but one of the things that it gets back to the first question is that medical practice uh, What's appropriate medical practice is, de is defined by all kinds of um, professional guidelines and by, uh, you know, the, what the, the Joint Commission says hospitals should do and what insurance right. company formularies will cover. And that, like the first questioner was saying, all of these, all of these different institutions, insurance companies just like uh, hospital accreditation committees, just like the, the pain, uh, professional pain societies, they were all saying the same thing in the in the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, and uh, we have information about why a lot of those were saying the same thing. I haven't seen specific concrete information about a, a money connection between the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, I can see, 
I, I can see it going either way on that, but it wouldn't be surprising if there was one. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Hi. Um, there's a lot of talk about the negative impact of consumerism in the health care industry. Um, I wonder if you, either of you have given any thought into the positive impacts in terms of oh, maybe sure. how it's empowered a lot of minority com yes. communities that have a lot of mm -hmm. distrust with the health system to kind of take ownership of their own health and how mm -hmm. that, like, what mm -hmm. your opinion is on that kind mm -hmm. of consumerism. So one of the, the most difficult challenges in writing my book was how to talk about the, the flaws of this critical consumerism without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Because when you look at um, the, many of the aspects of patient-centered care, patient empowerment, they, they're coming out of ideas that these critical consumerists came, came up with. Yes, they were, they were limited by their own class privilege, their own race, um, but they often were more so than a lot of people uh, trying to look at the big picture and to think about the, 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 the big consequences. Um, and the fact that um, consumerism has, has failed in so many respects, if you go back to what critical consumers were at, actually asking for, they never got it in the first place. Um, it was um, so much of what they were asking for in, in the old-fashioned language, we called it being co-opted. Um, you would take an idea and you would dress it up as uh, you know, basically uh, something that was going to be good for the pharmaceutical industry or um, the, the insurance companies or whatever. You'd make it sound like, oh yes, this is for consumers. Classic example is direct-to-consumer advertising for prescription drugs. No consumer advocacy groups, regardless of their race or class, thought that was a good idea. And they testified against it, and it still happened because basically pharmaceutical companies wanted to do it. They thought it was a good way to expand their sales, and they were actually correct. They did expand their sales. I think they paid a price for it because direct-to-consumer advertisement is very controversial. I've, I've even read some pharmaceutical executives saying, we're sorry we ever did it because they've lost. The old line used to be if you were in ethical pharmaceuticals, you did not advertise to, to the public. And that was kind of a point of, yeah, I mean, you did other stuff. But that was kind of a, um, a mark of, of a higher calling. And uh, that's gone. So, and, and I think they have paid a price um, as a result. But there are positive things about consumerism that I do try to bring out in, in, the, in the big picture. Yeah, it seems like it kind of depends on who's defining consumer and consumerism, right? Yes. And, and in whose interest. And so to the extent that there's a, <coughs> that there's a, uh, a push for consumers to have the, to, to level the playing field with the people they're negotiating with, mm -hmm. to, that, you know, people advocating on behalf of or who are consumers themselves. But the term, as, you, as the book shows so brilliantly, is that this, this term can be used to yep. mean so many different things. And the most powerful people in the room often get to end up being the ones defining what the term is. Get to define means. what the term is, yep. yeah. Thanks. We have room, time for one more question, then we're gonna wrap up. Ah, last but not least. <laughs> um, thank you so much for today. Um, both of you spoke a lot about advertising and showed some print ads. Um, I know the history of advertising from 
when the American Medical Association was trying to crack down on both claims made by um, patent medicine seller to now when you have these direct-to-consumer TV and internet ads. Right. Have you noticed a trend or a pattern that never really disappeared with these advertisements um, in, your, in both of your research? Like you talked about how they're marketing this drug and selling this kind of idealized version of health, mm. but how are they, I guess, targeting the consumer directly other than saying buy this drug? I mean, your mm -hmm. book is called Happy Pills, so I mean, are they selling this kind of happiness with medicine? Mm -hmm. mm. Well, I don't know. I'm struck by how bloody awful most direct-to-consumer advertising is, <laughs> and I, you know, I've puzzled about that. Other kinds of advertising are more, it, it, it I don't know, they don't true, seem to it? do a very good job of, of um, hmm. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, the only thing I would say is that, um, you know, for, in my part of the, in what I've looked at is psychoactive drug advertisements, and one of the, the most consistent pattern is that they are always um, pushing to have their drugs, they, they market their drugs by showing that they're not drugs. So that means that everybody in the advertisements is always doing whatever people are supposed to do at that time. So in the 50s, you know, there are always women with vacuum cleaners and yeah. children. Like, that's it. That's all you see. And their men are always at desks. They always wear ties. Makes me, like, when doing that research, I feel like I ought to be wearing a tie. Um, <laughs> and then as you go on in different eras, what you see is our drugs will make people act more normatively. And that's the difference between a drug, a medicine. Our medicines will do this. And so that is a pattern, and it's drenched with racial um, signifiers, class signifiers, and the whole point being psychoactive drugs are, are medicines as long as they make people act more normal. That's, that's been pretty consistent, although the content of it changes dramatically over time. Thank you hey, thank so you. much to our speakers. Thank you for listening. Please visit chstm.org slash shoppingforhealth to continue the discussion.